Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is James Landino, who's a composer and DJ based out of Tokyo, Japan. James has worked on a massive variety of projects, including Player Unknown's Battlegrounds Mobile, No Straight Roads, Tower of God, Roblox, and many, many others. In this episode, we talk about how James developed his iconic electronic musical style, what up-and-coming composers can do to stand out in a saturated industry, what's next for James now that he's composed for about 20 years now, and so much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with James Landino. So my first question for you is your kind of start of your career, I guess, is you started working on Dance Dance Revolution-esque games when you were much, much younger. And I want to talk about what you were doing before that kind of shift into going on online forums and talking to all these people and getting into the computer music side of things. What was that initial buildup when you were younger? It's funny you phrase it that way because I started playing the piano when I was like five years old and my parents had a rule for me and my older brother, which was that you have to play a sport and you have to play a musical instrument until the end of high school, which is a good rule. So so my brother had drums, I had piano. However, I cannot express this enough. I hated the piano. I would go as far as to say I hated music because the things I heard in the radio just I did not relate to. I didn't resonate with it even as a young child. But what I did relate to before I realized it was video game music. Mm -hmm. So like I remember being like six years old with my first like original Game Boy and I would put like Pokemon in and the original Game Boy had a built in speaker. So I would put Pokemon in and then, you know, because I didn't know that headphones existed. I would just blast the music on my Game Boy and put the speaker on my ear like a conch shell. So so even before I could even recognize like video game music as a thing, I was just drawn to it. But, you know, on that note, I always loved video games. And most kids in kindergarten were like, I want to be president. I want to be an astronaut. And for me, it was I want to work on video games. That was always the truth. So it was this kind of split situation where I loved video games. I wanted to work on video games. Meanwhile, I also hated music and wanted <laughs> nothing to do with it. But I loved video game music. And it didn't really come together in this moment until I was 11 and I found Flash Flash Revolution, which was a fan-based online version of Dance Dance Revolution. And they had this open submission post on the forum that you know basically was like, anyone who's a user can like submit their music and submit their, their dance charts to get in the game. And that's when it kind of hit me. I was like, wait a minute, I can write music for video games. I know I play piano, kind of. I just got to get the software now and figure it out. And I think that's when everything kind of came together at once. It wasn't like a buildup. It was like a, kind of like an explosion of like, whoa, I can do this. That's perfect. And like, what was that initial learning like? Because I know when you're younger, you just kind of try stuff and see what happens. Is that what it was? Or was there kind of more calculation to it? I wouldn't say it was calculated because for me, my main driver was just, I want to get as many songs into Flash Fresh Revolution. There's many songs that get accepted. So 
I guess it was just kind of like just the grind of just I want to just write as much music as possible to see how much music I could get in there. And I think by the end of my run in, in high school, I had like 30 songs in the game under like a different alias. So I was just cranking stuff out as best I could. And that was a good motivator for me to obviously, you know, get better at my craft, to kind of build up my internet brand, so to speak, at the time. Because this is back in like, what, 2004, 2005? This was before there was YouTube, before there's anything, right? So the way you learn music production was you really dive into forums and you talk to people who actually know their stuff, kind of maybe. There wasn't a nice way to go on YouTube.com and be like, how do I make dubstep sound? You just had to guess. So it was a lot of trial and error and talking to people who were also doing a lot of trial and error to figure out what we could figure out together. So it was a little bit of that chaos of learning was definitely very present. And I'm assuming... That kind of probably carries a little bit to this day where when you're on a new project, there's still that chaos of learning where you're still trying new things or figuring stuff out. Does Has that changed over time or is it now that you just go into a project and you're like, ah, I know what I'm doing, everything's fine? I would say it's 80% I know what I'm doing and 20% exploration, I would say. I would say after 20 years of doing one thing, I feel like I finally have kind of figured out music maybe, at least with <laughs> what I'm able to do. You know, it's like, I feel like I've gotten over the hump of like imposter syndrome of like, oh, I'm not good enough. It's like, no, I, I feel pretty good now. I guess I hope so after doing it for more than two thirds of my life. <laughs> that, that makes sense. And over that time, you've developed a very, very narrow niche of you, right? Like you have a style that people can recognize is very, very clear. And I think a lot of composers who are kind of starting or maybe in college right now or just graduated having done a little bit of everything, they kind of don't know where their voice is, what their niche should be, should they do everything? What do you kind of tell these kind of up and coming composers when they say like, well, I'll just do anything or should I niche down? What's how do I find my thing? I'll try my best to not give a cop out answer because I think the easy answer here is you should do what you're passionate about, do what you like, do the things that you're inspired by, right? Which is there's a truth in that my music sounds like Rhythm games and Sonic the Hedgehog. What do I love? Rhythm games and Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> you know, like I didn't like crack the code and like found some magic formula. I was just being really honest with myself of what I liked and drew those inspirations. But I would say though, at least for me, I think what really helped me reinforce my sound or at least my writing style was it wasn't the years like the high school was the most important formative years for me to kind of figure that out. And I think what helped me most was spending hours, 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 hours writing melodies. And not everyone's a melodic writer, but for me and my sound, I always was very happy with the melodies I've, I've written over the years. I feel like someone can tell it's me, not just through production, but through the composition. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't immediately think about. Sometimes I think these days, especially if people think about like, Oh, like, you know, the sound of your ensemble, your production or your arrangement. It's like, if you were to just play something on the piano, could someone tell it's you? Or at least people who are intimate with your musical works, could they tell it's you? And I think that's a really good sign that you're onto something. Mm, and you mentioned that grind just now of like trying stuff over and over and over. I think there's this external view of composers where it's like, oh, well, they just sit at a piano, stare at the moon, drink some wine, and then these beautiful melodies come out. But can you talk to that iteration process that you go through? The iteration process, I think, is more about my mindset as a musician, which is, and not just in music, but I think in life, 
I when I'm determined to do something, I don't just want to be the best at something. I always want to feel like I'm five steps ahead of everyone else. So it's not just the grind of, oh, I got to be the best, whatever that means to me. It's really like I want to be like leaps and bounds ahead of everyone else. And that is demonstrated through my grind and through my own process of what what does it take to get to that level? And it's all internal, right? I'm not like out here comparing like, oh, am I better than so-and-so? That's just the motivational lubricant mm-hmm. for me to stay focused and stay on that grind, I think, ultimately. Mm. And is does that still kind of fuel you today? Is that Was that just earlier? Is that still alive? It's changed over time, absolutely. But it's definitely still present. And I think 18-year-old me had the kind of chip-on-their-shoulder mentality of like, man, all of these composers of veterans of 10 years I'm not feeling them. I feel like I could do a better job. I feel like I could do this and I'll show everyone, right? I had that kind of like intense energy about it. And over time, that's changed. Now I see these like 16-year-olds and I'm like, man, these 16-year-olds are better than me. I got to step (laughs) up. They're going to take my gig by next year. And I love them. I'm so fortunate to kind of make friends with a lot of these young composers who are in high school and college who are just, just absolute rock stars as musicians. Like they'll they'll absolutely find their way if they keep at it. And so I'll talk to these 18-year-olds on Discord and they'll teach me things about production or about composition. I'm like, how do you know this stuff? It's just amazing. Again, once again, when you have a YouTube, you have a TikTok and just thousands of Discord servers of just endless information, you can learn the craft, like the technicality of the craft so quickly. And it just shows with some of these kids who just grind and do nothing but music, how good they are. So I think some people maybe who are around my age maybe feel threatened. And for me, it's the exact opposite. A big part of why I feel that way is because, as you mentioned earlier, I've crafted such a niche for myself where I believe in my heart that no one can really replicate what I do. So if no one can replicate what you can do, then no one can really replace you. Of course, they can in a kind of professional kind of service of the work sense. But in my heart of hearts, I'm never worried about someone like trying to be like a better version of me. Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of service, you had a really good post a while ago on Twitter. You mentioned kind of the business side and charging for your work of service versus craft. Uh, When you're charging for a service, you're essentially charging for, you know, oh, I'm going to write 10 minutes of music. I'm not charging for my specialty or anything like that. It's just here's a thing that I am providing. Whereas when you're charging for your craft, the sky is kind of the limit. There's no kind of ceiling to that price. You're not just charging for 10 minutes of music. You're charging for you specifically, something that only you can do, something that you've owned. I guess, yeah, at least from that angle, the difference between charging someone for your service versus charging someone for your craft, when you charge someone for your service, you're kind of competing against the rates of everyone else who kind of does the service of writing music, which can range from $500 a minute to three or $4,000 a minute, so on and so forth. That's like the general band that I typically hear versus charging for your craft, where if it's only one you, and it's just you because it's your craft, you can charge literally anything you want. And I do know composers, high profile composers who have a very strong brand who've charged 50k, 100k for one piece of music. And it's because they have the brand to carry that. And that's why over time, I've always felt that if you really want to stick out, if you really want to kind of make noise in this industry for what you do, I think it is arguably almost necessary these days to build a brand and really focus on that brand. And I think some composers are are noticing that and doing that, which I think is great, especially through YouTube and covers or just doing other kinds of social media kind of strategies. 
I think that's been really helpful for a lot of composers to really kind of build their fan base, build their audience. And even if it feels like they don't have a lot of fans at the time, it still creates that presence that they have a fan base, that they have a brand, and that brand is something that's valuable and that developers will seek them out because they're like, oh man, we got to get that artist who has that sound that you can't get anywhere else. And can you talk to how you built yours and how you kind of started it? Because I'm sure it wasn't, you know, millions of people overnight. I think for me, it goes back to an earlier point I was talking about with being true to yourself and being inspired by inspirations, right? Because <laughs> for me, you know, like rhythm games have such a distinct sound. In fact, that's a whole other conversation for another day about rhythm game sounds kind of it's starting to be very derivative of itself. But even still, rhythm games have a very distinct sound because it's music that's written to encourage fun gameplay as, as opposed to, say, some other kinds of video game music where it's just behind the scenes. It's just a an ambience to the overall experience. So it's kind of the opposite. And for me, as a composer, I'm much more passionate about music that is in the forefront that people want to like listen and hear as they play. I distinctly remember I got into a debate with Michael Sweet, who is a professor at Berkeley, because Michael Sweet and many other, I think, scholars of video game music kind of, I think, believe that video game music should be in service to the whole vision. And while there's truth in that, even as an 18-year-old, I'd always felt like, no, it can be present. I remember Michael saying once that if someone notices the music, you've done a bad job. And I think I, completely the opposite. And Michael's not the only one, too. It's just kind of the story I remember. I remember other musicians or students that I talked to, like at Berkeley or otherwise, where I always felt like, no, the music that I was always interested in and why I even started writing music was because I noticed it. So why am I going to start writing music that people are trying not to notice? That seems completely counterintuitive to everything I do. So I think to kind of go back full circle on your question, I think that these philosophies that I have about video game music, like and what it means to me, does drive the sound that ultimately I have now, because it's just all the ideas and philosophies, not just the notation and the production, but it's really the whole ethos of why I'm doing this in the first place that I think when someone takes that time to identify and really reinforce that, that's when it all comes together. And I think they have like the sound they're looking for. Awesome. And can you talk to me about how kind of being in the foreground and building this fan base over time has served you? Because I think a lot of composers, like you said, some like to stay in the background and that's totally fine. But I think the ones that even do want to come to the forefront are really scared of it or might not even see the benefits of it. I mean, yeah, I think the benefits of a fan base, there's several things I can start to identify. One being that whenever you put something out, there will always be people who are excited about what you're posting. If you have a fan base, hopefully you're putting out music that's not just only when you have a project to talk about, but also just when you have your own personal music to put out, right? So you have more reasons, more, in my mind, you have more reason, more motivation to share new things because you have a little fan base of people who are excited about what you're making, right? And that obviously creates that feedback loop of, oh, they're excited? Well, I'll keep making more and so on and so forth. Of course, some fans are also game developers, right? So I've gotten work because they're fans, right? And that's typically how it goes. In most cases of my portfolio and getting work as a musician, it's because someone reached out to me because they want me. And that's because they were a fan of my music. It becomes now a long-term marketing driver, right? That's a huge piece of it. And just also on a personal level, like I've made friends with fans, right? I think some people, the philosophy of not being friends with your fans, and I understand that, fine, fine, fine. But if you, if you 
over time, naturally, I've become good friends with people who were fans of mine and had developed really good relationships with. So I would have never met certain people if not I had fans, right? And I, I see all the pros and no real significant cons, I guess, unless you're a super duper celebrity that's... <laughs> You're at, you're at the top of the top, and that's a whole other conversation, right? But I think for me, who has my little micro island of popularity, like I'll go to MAGFest for a weekend and I'll feel like, okay, you're right, like that's it. But I'm not, I'm not getting stopped in the streets. I'm not getting bothered. By and large, right, there's like a story here or there, but it's nothing like anything intense. So for me, yeah, fans are all the pros. And I think reasonably speaking, there's not really any downside to it. I think it's, it's good for people to think about how can they build a little fan base and also, side note, for me, having a fan base helps me focus on who I'm writing this music for. Because I think sometimes when you're a composer, I think we all do it on some level, you know, like, oh, I'm trying to please the client or please, who am I pleasing? I'm pleasing the client or am I pleasing just the general audience? Am I pleasing myself or my, my friends, right? Sometimes I've, I felt like composers are trying to please other composers and nothing wrong with that. I think for me, though, like what happens is if you get too much down that rabbit hole, you will start to make music that only composers like. And I'm not trying to make music that composers like. I'm trying to make music that everyone likes or everyone at least who likes the idea of what I'm doing. So I think having a fan base and having a desire for that fan base helps keep you focused on who you're really writing this for and why do they matter. At the end of the day, you know, if a, like, and it helps me separate myself from, let's say, like a friend of mine doesn't like my music. That's perfectly fine. Why? Because I have a fan base that likes my music. I don't need all my friends and family to like what I'm doing because I'm not going to feel insecure about, oh, if they don't like my music, then does it mean no one likes it? No, I have several people, several tens of people who like what I do. <laughs> so that's how I see it. I just see a lot of advantages to having fans and having an audience that you've built up over time. Now, was there ever a time in your career so far that maybe you were unsure about this whole music career thing, or maybe you're thinking it wasn't going to work out, or maybe you just felt kind of stagnated. And how did you move through that? I think back to 10 years ago, like back in college, especially around Berkeley, my mentality during college was this is do or die. So I guess in my in my heart of hearts, I never really felt like, oh, I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I'm making it. It's more of like, I have one shot at this. I got to make this count. So I don't think I was ever unsure because I always, even as an 18 year old, I had kind of made like these kind of one year, three year, five year plans for myself of like, all right, well, by next year, I want to be here. I want to get here by doing blank. By three years, I want to be here and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And I like, I remember being in college and having like a clear plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D post-college. Like if I don't get this job at Harmonix, I'm going to do blank. And if I don't get that, I'm going to do this. And that helps me always stay focused and not get too bogged down by whether I'm going to make it or not make it. I can't control whether someone hires me or not, but I can control me. I can control what I do. So I think that always kept me focused on the career path and feeling confident in myself to make sure like, all right, well, as long as I follow this plan, I'll get to the next step somehow, right? So at least on that end, I, I don't think there was ever much unwavering. I would say, and as weird as this sounds, that I'm turning 31 this week, and I've been doing this for 20 years now. And I think if anything, I have started to feel like, man, what else does life have to offer than just music? Because mm -hmm. 
when I think back to everything I've done in my career, reasonably speaking, I've done everything I've set out to do, whether with some of my favorite game companies, work on the coolest projects, being able to write music the way I want to write it for these projects, making XYZ amount of money. When I think back to age 18 of what my goals were, I pretty much checked off all the boxes, which is a really cool place to be at. But for selling myself, who's had goals on goals on goals, and now I'm 31 and I'm like, shit, what goals do I have left? I think if anything, that's been a little bit of my current uh, challenge is kind of figuring out what's next. And I think I have an idea of it, but I'm still kind of identifying it. Mm. And are you getting inspirations from other places? Because something I've noticed with a lot of us in the game industry is once you start to make games, you kind of start playing them less. I've noticed this pretty much universally. And I'm wondering where you're kind of drawing inspiration if it isn't from video games or music or anything like that. As weird as it sounds, I'm not sure if I'm directly drawing inspiration from other things into music. But to your point, like I don't play a lot of video games currently. Rather, the game I play the most right now is chess. I <laughs> fucking love chess. I had played chess as a kid growing up, so it's not like new to me. But I got back into it during COVID, and then Queen's Gambit came out, and I was like, oh, shit, chess. <laughs> Literally before this podcast, I was, I was playing like five rounds of like speed chess. Like awesome. I, I love chess. But yeah, I think the way how I've always have like, written music, I would always just kind of make sounds in my head while I'm living life. Like, what's the sound of me washing dishes, the sound of me taking a walk or going on a run, or the sound of me while I talk to my friends? And I think just having that kind of subconsciously in my brain as I exist. The cliche is just that, oh, life gives me music, man. But it's the truth, though. It kind of does in a weird way. What excites me most is people and helping people. And I think kind of going back to an earlier point about you know how I've accomplished most of my goals, what I'm really excited about of anything these days is helping a lot of composers realize those goals that they have, right? And that's one of my motivations of starting a company a few years ago was being able to now help manage and help represent composers on projects, get them work that they're passionate about, that gets them good money. I, I love feeling like I can help someone realize their goals, especially for a lot of composers who don't know nor want to deal with the business side. I love the business side of music, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. I think it's actually a lot of fun and it, it, it uses very similar muscles to how I write music even, as weird as that sounds. So... I think that's kind of where my head's at of anything is I'm just inspired by people around me and I want to help those people get to that next level. Mm. Now, when it comes to helping these composers, are there things you're kind of seeing as a trend with them when it comes to things that you're helping them with? Like, oh, okay, these people have been maybe undercharging or they're not asking these questions or they're not focusing on an XYZ thing. What are some things that you're seeing that they might not know about that you're helping them with? I think the, the easiest one that I notice is they're not charging enough. That, that's kind of the baseline because I think for a lot of composers, going back to an earlier point about charging for your service versus your craft, you know, it, it kind of reinforces that message. Like, you know, when I talk to some of these composers who I work with, like their craft is phenomenal. And they may not feel confident enough to charge even $1,000 per minute of music when that's like the budget professional standard. And so I try to tell these guys like, no, no, we can we can charge like 3k per minute. Like if we do if we do this right, we, we can get some money out of this. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of their minds are kind of blown. Like, Wait, what we can get I'm like, yeah, like we can we can get that. And I think that even kind of telling them that piece of information gives them much more confidence in their craft and like kind of what's possible. There's more to it than that, but even on that on rates 
and what they feel like their rates are worth, like telling them, hey, like you as a composer, your cap is endless. It's not like it ends at a thousand per minute and like that's your life from now on. There's more to the professional side of things of what you can you can earn out of this business. So I always tried to help them on that side. Mm. Yeah, there's there's something you mentioned that's really important there is that even if they're amazing, there are these composers, I think this is a lot of people, where they might not even know that they're even really good yet, and they just don't feel confident. And do you have advice for people who kind of need to make that step into either charging more or knowing how good they are or knowing where they kind of should be or how to grow? Like there's this kind of divide between the skill and the amount they're charging or the gigs that they're getting or the confidence to even step out and approach people and pitch to games and stuff like that. Hmm. I'm trying to think the best answer for this because there's a few ways I can approach this. I also don't want this to become like like a negotiation podcast, right? Because that, that, that does play into a little bit, right? That stuff's great too. Yeah, for sure. I think, I guess one little note I can think about is in most cases, in, in my belief system, that when I have negotiated a rate for a project and they immediately say yes, I'm like, shit, I undercharged. Yeah. I remember there was this project and I was like, hey, so for this deliverable, it was, it was a very easy deliverable. Like it was a great deal. I'm not complaining. But I was like, like for this composing like one song and a few licensing of blank, it was like 20K. And they were like, Great, we'll send to your PayPal in 30 minutes. And I was like, you're kidding me. Damn it. Fuck. I should ask for 40. So it's those <laughs> things. If it feels that easy to get paid, chances are you undercharged. I think that's a little tip that I I believe rings true. I think it takes practice to ask for those numbers. Sure, on paper, you know, you could just be like, oh, I charge two hundred dollars a minute and now I'm gonna charge three K a minute. Booyah. If you can do that, great. I couldn't. I always feel like I had to kind of like work my way into it for my own sake. And I'm not saying to anyone listening that, oh, like you got to earn that 3K minute. No, 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 no. It's more of like, at least for me, asking for some big numbers was scary. Like at first. Yeah. Like, there's, there's some zeros on this. Like saying the story about the 20K, like that's, that's four zeros. Like a few years ago, I would have not had the confidence to type that out and send to a person with genuine sincerity. I would like 20K for this, please. And that just takes practice, I think. And I think a little bit of confidence and belief in yourself over time to feel like, yes, I am worth this number. Yeah. So that that's kind of the framework is how do you believe in yourself strongly enough that you feel like you deserve that number? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned something really important, which is practice, because I think people will think that, oh, OK, business skills aren't something that you can necessarily practice, but they definitely are. You kind of start by charging 20 bucks for this thing. And then 10 years later, you're charging 20K. It's really interesting that, that there is a big growth to that. So I'm curious now that you've moved to Japan because that's amazing and this is a relatively new thing. Are you finding your work process or your kind of lifestyle or anything like that changing significantly? Because I'm sure you're working with the same people or people from all over the world. So I'm curious how that's changed and how your mindset has adapted to the new environment. Um, truthfully, I would say my day-to-day -day has not changed too much. I'm saying that very lightly because, of course, like I'm in a whole new continent and whole new language, a whole new just way of life, one society to another. But when I'm in my apartment, like right now talking to you in front of my work desk, it's the same situation, right? I'm still at my work desk at the same setup I've had since post-college. It's all the same to me. I think, side note, that if for anyone who kind of wants to make these big life changes, like, oh, I want to go move across the world for a few years and kind of learn and see what happens, 
my suggestion at least is make sure you have a few things of familiarity. For me, you know, a, a bunch of my music friends were like, oh, why are you bringing your whole setup from LA? Couldn't you just restart and rebuild it? I'm like, honestly, no, I don't think it's a good idea. I think that the fact that it's my desk from LA, in fact, it's my desk from Boston to LA <laughs> to Japan, you know, sisterhood of the traveling work desk. <laughs> I think that helps me kind of stay focused because I'm just like, once it's set up back in my new apartment in Japan, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's back to back to usual. When it comes to making music, it's the same feeling. It's the same situation. I think that's really important. Mm, beautiful. Now, a question I like to ask everyone who comes on here as we start to wrap up is when you were first starting out, and that could be when you were 11 years old, it could have been when you were five years old, whatever starting point you want to pick, did you have some sort of idea of success in your brain? And how has that changed over time? And what is that definition of success to you now? To be honest, I would say where I'm at now is pretty much one-to-one -one with what I set out to do, which is what I was saying earlier about you know hitting your goals. Like I'm in a very fortunate position where I'm making good money for what I'm doing. I'm writing music that is true to me, like in the very real sense. So I recently wrapped up work on a game called Omega Strikers. And looking back, now that the whole game is wrapped up, looking back at all the music I wrote, I'm like, all this music is music that 16-year-old me would have written. And that feels really good. It felt very validating to feel like high school of me, teenage me, you know, at the time was only motivated by writing music that I wanted to write, is still writing music now as a professional, now at a top level, still writing the same style, the same sound, if not just more refined in my craft. That was very just honestly, like really validating for me. So I think I'm just very lucky and fortunate that I've been able to have a career path where I set out to do the thing. And then I did it. And I say that way too easily, way too simply, because I sacrificed a lot to get here. But I can say for sure that I set out to do something that 99% of people I don't think would believe me when I told them I was 16, I want to do this. And they're like, okay, sure. It feels good. Hmm, awesome. And where can people find you? Plug anything you want. You can find me, uh, James Landino, on you know YouTube, Spotify, Twitter, Instagram. If you type James Landino, you're, I can almost promise it's going to be me. <laughs> Find me on the internet. I'm around. And of course, for everyone listening, I always like to help people. If you're someone who is has questions or you want to learn how to get in the industry or you just have like a thought on anything, hit me up. Hit me up in my email. It's on my website on jameslandino.com. I always like to help people like whenever I do panels or I do speaking events or just responding to emails. I got an email last week. So... I always like to try to help people when I can because I, I, for me, I never had a mentor in this industry. I had to learn everything on my own through this whole process. And so if I can even be a little bit of that to someone else um, and give them a little bit of like, like a insight of what to do or some advice, I'm, I'm all for that. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time today, James. I think people are going to get a lot out of that. Awesome. Thanks, Akash. Appreciate it. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound B-I-Z pod. 
And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much. I'll see you next time.